Welcome to Beyond the Labyrinth, one of several places where I, Alfred Reeves Visson, and my co-beagler, Hannah Gracian, engage in the labyrinthine pursuit of questions of meaning. See what else we're up to, including a bookful bequest, the collection of Hannah's reflections on classic novels, a push of the pendulum, my fantasy novel, and keeping it all the year, a blog inspired by Dickens' A Christmas Carol, all at dedalia.net. So we seem to be really good at finding obscure connections. And this week we have three for you that are really obscure. We're going to nose around in a loosely gathered suite of ideas arising from the intersection of three very different things. Douglas Adams' concept of the electric monk in Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception, and the Beatles song, Tomorrow Never Knows. So this is gonna take some explaining. First, Douglas Adams, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Published in 1987, Gently is a departure for Adams from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, which is what he's probably best known for. He had finished So Long and Thanks for All the Fish and was turning to something new. It's a very clever and funny novel in which the basic premise is that since in theory, everything is interconnected with everything else, then solving a crime, or more likely locating a lost cat, can involve literally anything and any expenses, like a trip to the Bahamas. The novel involves time travel, Samuel, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Kubla Khan, and most importantly for our purposes, an electric monk. What in the world is an electric monk? Well, this monk is an appliance, like a dishwasher or a washing machine. But instead of doing the tedious cleaning of dishes for you, an electric monk saves you from the task of believing all the things that the world expects you to believe. One of the plot threads is driven by a malfunctioning electric monk whose belief in absurd things has driven it to need a new motherboard, and it's been put out to pasture, so to speak, since it's cheaper to upgrade to a new model. Adams is poking fun at consumerism run amok to the point where we even buy labor-saving devices to handle what we believe about reality for us. In The Doors of Perception, Aldous Huxley challenges our very beliefs about reality and points a finger at reasons why we might need an electric monk. Huxley was an English writer. Many of us remember him for his dystopian science fiction novel, Brave New World. Grandson of 19th century biologist Thomas Huxley, known as Darwin's bulldog for his advocacy of Darwin's theory of evolution, Huxley was born just before the turn of the century to a family with a history of exploring evolving understandings of the relation of humanity to the universe, accompanying rapid advances in all the sciences. In May 1953, Aldous Huxley was 59 and had an abiding interest in mysticism. He had been following the literature in the emerging field of psychedelic drugs and self-transcendence when he took advantage of an opportunity to play guinea pig with a dose of mescaline. Mescaline, a psychedelic drug like LSD, is derived from the peyote cactus and is used in Native American religious observances. Huxley's short book, Doors of Perception, recounts his experiences on mescaline and explores interpretations of the sense of self-transcendence that can occur under its influence. More to the point of our discussion today is the passage from 19th century poet William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, to which the title of Huxley's book refers. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. So indoors, Huxley explores the idea of bypassing the filter that insulates us from reality of being. 
the paradox of our existence. So that's connection number two. And now connection number three is John Lennon in Tomorrow Never Knows, which is a pretty well-known Beatles song on the, on, on the Revolver album. And it's a song where the Beatles first really started exploring psychedelia. Lennon had read Timothy Leary's The Psychedelic Experience, which uh, uses the Tibetan Book of the Dead as a metaphor uh, to explain the death of the self. And Leary's book, in turn, is dedicated to Huxley and cites the doors of perception. In the song, Lennon's trying to capture in music the feeling of a drug trip that breaks down the filter that separates us from true reality. So we have this seemingly torturous but real string string of connections that we're going to talk about today. Let's hope they're real. <laughs> well, we'll see. Yeah. So... I- <clears throat> So it's my fault we, we, uh, we're talking about electric monks because I think the idea is hilarious. Um, so I, I thought a fun place to start would be to, to, to read a short passage from Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. And I want to put in a plug for this book. A lot of people don't know about this book, even if they are Douglas Adams fans. Everyone knows about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But there are actually two Dirk Gently books, and um, this one and The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul, and they're, they're, they're both great books. Um, excellent very title there, yes, Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul. Excellent title, yes. So um, th- this one is the first thing he, he wrote uh, that was different from the Hitchhikers series, and um, we won't get into the plot, which is torturous, but, but this concept of an electric monk is just, it's amazing. So here's, here's the passage uh, where he introduces uh, the electric monk, which is early on in the book. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote here from the, from the book. <clears throat> the electric monk was a labor-saving device, like a dishwasher or a video recorder. Dishwashers wash tedious dishes for you, thus saving you the bother of washing them yourself. Video recorders watch tedious television for you, thus saving you the bother of looking at it yourself. Electric monks believe things for you, thus saving you what was becoming an increasingly onerous task, that of believing all the things the world expected you to believe. So... I think that's a delightful passage, and and you know maybe it's worth remembering that Adams is writing this in the mid to late eighties, eighty uh, seven, I think. Um, video recorders were not that old. I mean, the first uh, videotape recorders I think came out in the right around nineteen eighty, late nineteen seventies. The idea that that you know television, which is in itself is a is a sort of different reality, you could now record it and then um, not watch it and watch it later. Um, and and it seems to me that one of the big the big deals of, of video recorders were that you could watch it without the commercials, right? Yes. yes so so right. you could watch it on your own time, which means you're no longer participating in the flow of time um, around you. But also, you could eliminate the commercials. Yes, and and commercialism is something that Adams pokes kind of gentle fun at through at all of his books. Um, Huxley picks up on it in, in Doors, which we're going to get to in just a minute. Um, and, 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 but I think the, the other really big idea here is the whole notion of modern convenience. And, and Adams, kind of like Monty Python uh, did in The Holy Grail, he, he's, he's really good at you know, writing these, these um, jokes, these ideas in scenes of his novels that are very, very funny because they're so absurd. But at the same time, he's really touching on or pointing at the absurdity of, of the world that we've created for ourselves, the life around us, the, the, what we take to be important and real. Um, 
so you know existential uh, elevators electric monks the neutromatic drinks dispenser doors that talk um you know i i these are these are really funny ideas that pop up th through his novels and, and so a few of them are probably worth just explaining um so uh we, we've got the electric monk already and uh and i also recall in one of the jokes in the hitchhiker's guide is um something you know a description of the human race saying the inhabitants of planet earth were so backwards that they still thought digital watches were a great idea and you know again for, for anyone who's been alive long enough digital watches came out in the late 1970s and they were these um led things that you couldn't read in sunlight and they were they were absurd you know you couldn't like everyone was excited about them and wore them i had the, i had one when i was like 12 and it was useless because you couldn't read it outside um you know that, that, what you're telling me is there are no more digital watches oh no there are but they've changed the design of them now so they're, okay they're, they're they're liquid crystal instead of led so they're easier to read but anyway of course right um but adam's latches onto this kind of stuff and so he has the electric monk he has in the hitchhiker's guide he's got the idea of the um the elevators at the headquarters of the Sirius Cybernetics, or not, uh, at the Hitchhiker's the headquarters of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and you know, someone decided that it would be a great idea to endow ele elevators with intelligence so that they could and, and precognition so they could figure out where what floor you wanted to be on, and so you wouldn't have to tediously push buttons. And what happens is the elevators have existential crises and end up sulking in the basements of the buildings and refusing to move. And you know, just ideas like that are hilarious. Or the, okay, there's where AI is scary, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, because you know, Adams is joking around, but you know, we're, we're marching into this future of seemingly designing uh, devices without without thinking about the implications. Um, yes. Another one is uh, early on in, in the first Hitchhiker's book, um, you know, Arthur Dent, who's the poor human who's been rescued, quote unquote, from planet Earth before it's destroyed by the Vogons. And he's wandering around the spaceship, the heart of gold. He's sort of useless and in the way. And he, what he really, really wants is a good Brit is a cup of tea. Uh, and so he, so he, he, he finds the Nutramatics drinks dispenser, which analyzes your tongue and your body and your taste buds. And, you know, is supposed to deliver a drink that is exactly suited to your physiology and what you need at the moment. And what it does is, is produce a drink that is almost, but not entirely unlike tea. And, and so he sits down and spends time describing to the, to this machine, the history of, you know, the British East India company and China and, and milk and, and, you know, and the, and the machine says, so you want, you know, something like hot water straining through the leaves of this plant and you want, um, you know, the secretions of this bovine and, and you know, and, and Arthur Dent says, yes, that's what I want. And so then the, the machine says, well, this is going to take a bit. And so it then links up with the ship's computer and uses all the computing power on the entire ship to make tea. And at the course, right at the moment when they get attacked and so the ship can't move. And I mean, it's hilarious. If, if you haven't read this, you have to treat yourself to you absolutely know, and, it's it's an easy read and great deal of fun right and, and so but but again this this sort of the serious point underlying the humor of, of of the absurdity of the of the of the things that we we create and do to save ourselves labor um you know not that i want to spend my life washing dishes um but i but i think you know adams is poking fun at a world in which we do very little and so we have very little contact with actual reality and that and that's and he's kind of pointing out the absurdity of it um, you know, which to me raises the question of, are we really living in a world in which labor is saved to such an extent, you know, we, we, we have insulated ourselves so much from, from reality. 
Um, and of course, the whole the whole drive of the Hitchhiker series is, is is sort of what is the meaning of life? You know, that's one of the big jokes. Is you know they have the answer, but they don't know what the question is. And you know, and I think at the very end, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't give it away, but you know, the you know the, the very end, it's something like you know we apologize for the inconvenience. Is the <laughs> <laughs> which is of course it is yeah so um anyway I, you know that to me seems uh again funny but also serious and in the spirit of of the holistic detective agency which again i think adams had been reading about quantum mechanics and the interconnection of all things uh and he came up with this hilarious idea of dirk gently who was a um you know cambridge dropout who founds a detective agency based on the principle of the quantum indeterminacy of, of, of everything. And so, you know, he tries to locate a missing cat and that requires a trip to the Bahamas and a bill for 2000 pounds or whatever. Um, you know, that's just part of uh, what's necessary to solve a crime. A anything can be relevant. Um, so, you know, in the spirit of that, um, we, we're starting off with the concept of the electric monk and what a hilarious idea that is that the world expects you to believe all these things um, and some of them are quite absurd. And so we create a device to believe them for us. Um, but that, you know, if anything's related, it's not too big of a jump to bring up Aldous Huxley in, in the doors of perception. Yeah, since everything's connected, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> well, well, Huxley is um, playing with it. I mean, what does it take to believe in all this stuff? I mean, this this stuff is is, I think, sort of the filter right so yeah. Huxley um he, he refers to a guy named Bergson which I'm going to say right now I don't I've never read him but what uh, Huxley Paul. says is Henri Bergson is a early 20th century French philosopher oh good I can't have spelled his name right then if he's French all right fine but anyway the function of the brain and the nervous system and the sense organs according to to Huxley according to Bergson is that you know, we actually physically have the ability to remember and perceive, to remember everything and perceive everything everywhere. Like, like, like our minds could see it all. And um, so, the, so the purpose of the brain and the nervous system, or a purpose of the brain and the nervous system, the sense organs, is actually to close things out, to keep us from being overwhelmed and confused by what would in effect be large amounts of knowledge that is useless that we can't use to get our dishes clean or get food to eat or read a book you know all this useless stuff um and that way it narrows down what we are aware of to those things that are useful we yes. are all potentially mind at large. And this is actually a survival mechanism protecting us from ourselves. Right. And, and the things that we dream up to protect ourselves are often absurd and hence the need for an electric monk. Yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's a scene in, uh, well, what, what you will have to describe more about the doors of the perception, but there's a part in the doors of perception where he's, he's on mescaline and, 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 and we must say he does this very, it's very scientific, you know, there's, he's, he's being observed and, and whatnot, but they, they oh, take administered his, by a psychiatrist, psychiatrist. and he's yeah. never left alone. And yes, yes, all this. Um, but, but at one point they take <laughs> him out of the house and they go, they go downtown and they go to a drugstore. The world's well, largest drugstore. The world's largest <laughs> drugstore, yes, which is really kind of funny in and of itself. So, so he he's sort of leaping from this notion of finding what what is the truth about reality into into very much into the everyday, 
um, and, and into, into commercialism. And he, he, he wanders around the drugstore and ends up for some, for some bizarre reason in this drugstore, they have a collection of art books and he starts flipping through them, which then triggers him on this whole like journey or this exploration of art and looking at art under the influence of mescaline and then reflecting on what art does and the symbols of art and all this kind of stuff. Um, but it's such a weird juxtaposition because in this drugstore is full of everything that right it, it makes up the filter and, and keeps us from from just you know absorbs us into utility into everyday use and and distraction yes. and and then of course Huxley wanders in on mescaline and, and find, manages to find a way to to um, connect to um, you know I guess reality yes yes and I guess um, can can we can we get to Stigkeit here, one of my favorite words. Um, in these art books, he finds textiles. <laughs> well, he doesn't. He actually, I think, I think the textiles come up right at the beginning, don't they? Where he's staring at his trouser leg, and then yeah, know, well, yeah, right. Up. And I think that's what had aroused his interest. I mean, we, we sort of skipped that part. He starts out. He's looking at. at he's at home, so he's looking at yeah. flowers, and he. You know, he describes the bouquet of flowers beforehand, and then he describes them on mescaline, which is, is kind of entertaining. Um, and and he, and he walks through his house and he looks at things. He sees a bamboo chair with chair legs and right. the very chair legginess of those chair legs. It's, it's like the platonic ideal, except it's real. And that is your estigkeit, your suchness, your ding on Zeke. He's, he, he, so he lays that foundation, yes, at the house before he goes to the drugstore. And one of the things he looks at and marvels at is his trousers. Um, how would you describe what he experiences when he looks at those? I mean, because it's more of this, it's more of the suchness. So what, what's he seeing? Would you say? Well, let's maybe let's unpack that idea a yeah, little bit. Yeah. Um, so uh, I mean, and Huxley uses the word istigkeit. It's a German word. Uh, he uses it in the Doors of Perception. And yeah, it's a fabulous word. I mean, you know, German is such a great language for such things. Um, it's, the lang it's certainly one of the great. You languages. can build any word you need. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Um, but, but he's borrowing that from Meister Eckhart, who uh, was a, a late medieval German theologian and mystic. Um, and, and he, who I, who, uh, you know, maybe ironically, maybe not actually got in trouble with the Roman Catholic church for the, for the radical nature of his, his views. Um, but I think the point for us is Eckhart was in, was, uh, you know, kind of in the Neoplatonic tradition, which uh, goes back to a, a classical philosopher named Plotinus who took the ideas of Plato and kind of worked on them. But, but this idea is there was the one um, there's sort of this inner unity and Plotinus's idea was, it was sort of like uh, you drop a pebble in a pond and, and, you know, and what happens is you get, you get the, the ripples expanding outward. And, and that's kind of his, his metaphor for the, for the true nature of reality is that everything is one is one, but we are, we are, we are ripples in the pond. We are echoes of, of, of oneness. And so um, we, we're all running around in our individual daily existences, um, you know, and we're, 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 we are discrete selves and we have our self-centered goals and we're worried about utility and use and practicality and all the things that we worry about as, as these discrete creatures, all of which is, you know, at some level real, 
but when we, as soon as, as we focus on those things, then, then, um, you know, we, we never know that there's anything else and, and sort of, uh, Plotinus and Eckhart and even going back to Plato, we're trying to say, you know, there is another reality that is in fact much more real. Um, and, um, what I, I think what Huxley's trying to say is, okay, I, I, you know, under the influence of certain drugs, that filter that separates us from the unity that, 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 and it, that you know, this sort of very practical filter that keeps our brains focused on our individual uh, experiences. Um, taking this drug helps move that filter away so that you experience reality as it really is. You experience unity. Um, and I think it's important to say he, he makes connections with mystical experience, with meditation. I was going to say the drug is not the only way. Right? Yeah. I think that's very important. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but it's an easy way. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think that's the basic idea is that at its heart, every, the, the, the assertion is that all things are part of one unity and our experience, unfortunately, is limited to, 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 to finitude, to plurality, and we don't see the unity. And so this istikite is this notion of that is pure isness. I mean, that's, that's probably the best translation in English. Uh, yes. Isness. Yes. And, um, he, and he translated, I guess, as suchness. I, I think such, that's such, the word that. Which he's borrowing from the Eastern tradition. Um, yes, right. And, but the idea is that you are, you are suddenly experiencing the, the the being of all things and and so this is a this is a fascinating topic because it's it's where where it's paradoxical is that in the individual discrete finite thing which is individual discrete and finite at the same time it is also infinite it is also pure being it is not limited and 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 what he's getting at is with this filter stripped away he could look at anything no matter how mundane and see that being see istikite um that, that's right. So trousers, textiles. Uh, trousers, yeah. Something is as absolutely mundane as as the legs of his trousers. He's he's seeing pure being. He's the the texture, the color, the you know, and he he goes on a great length about the flowers and what the colors look like and and, and all this stuff. Um, and the chair leg, the chair legginess of it, as he talks about the pure chair legginess of it, which it, at some level, right, is is pure being and pure reality, even though it's also just a chair leg. And that's this, and it's wondrous. Yes, it's you know, wondrous, I mean, right? I first read this this book, I don't know, 30 years ago. And that is what I really remember, the wonder at the chair legs. But so when he gets to the drugstore, so he's already seen his trousers once, right? And, right. and, and, <laughs> and gone through all of this. So when he gets to the drugstore, what he's looking at is representational art, which means, you know, right. people and yeah. And and he's he he is I think if I recall correctly he is meditating a little bit on on it, it it's confined you know because people this is representation representational art is interpreting things and he's saying he he makes a statement about artists which may not be too important to what we're talking about but it's kind of interesting that that artists can see they can see beyond the filter always yeah they they have that vision always and so then they create something they're creating a representation but they can always see it. And so he's thinking about this and this problem that it's representational. So it's introducing the filter again, but he says, ah, it's in the textiles. If you look at the wondrous folds and the fabrics, there you see inf infinity, there you see the ishtikite in, in the representational art, which I don't know. I, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, in a different way from Douglas Adams, but it's actually very funny to, to yeah. be talking about this. You know, it's very entertaining. 
Um, I th- it's it's also very serious, and he was he meant it to be taken very seriously. But I think it's yeah. Yeah. funny. Yeah, I do. <laughs> well, I mean, I, my read of it, of it is he was excited, as you said, an easier way. I mean, because the great mystics, and, and particularly um, what what most Westerners think of along those lines, is is you know, like for instance, Hindu traditions of meditation. Um, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's very hard work, right? It takes a lifetime yes. to train your mind, you know, to sort of bypass the filter. And so I think Huxley is maybe looking at that with a great deal of respect, Yes. but, but saying at this, oh, well, here's a possible way that this could, could be real for more people in a much easier way. And of course the question is whether it is really the same thing. I mean, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to answer. Right. That, and, I, but... and I think, I think that's a whole big debate, you know, that's, that's right. been debated right. much without the discipline. Do you have, do you have the same experience, yeah. but the discipline of course causes you to have to exclude much of life experience. You know, I mean, yes. you have, you're, you're trading sets of experiences for one another, which most people don't want to do. And well then that, and that, but see, so that's the part that's so interesting to me is that un, I think uh, unfortunately in human philosophical and religious history, um, certainly in the Western tradition coming from Plato, there is a tendency to divide those two things yes. right? to say, okay, here is life in this world and it is limited and finite and subject to sickness and death and change and decay. I mean, that was sort of Plato's thing. I mean, he, he was, you know, he lived through, you know, the decline of the golden age of Athens and the, the wars with Sparta and, and all of this and, the, and, you know, the death of Socrates and, you know, he was, you know, and so he was, he was postulating this other realm of perfection, of pure being, the platonic, the forms as we call them. And, and, you know, and they were, they were separate and, and it's, 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 well, I think that's a little bit simplistic. It, it is hard to see in Plato's writing, how you bring the two together without a lot of contradiction. Um, because they are so so opposite, and and I think, you know, what the Neoplatonic tradition tries to do is 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 to is to figure that out. But but I think that dualism, that that separation, is pretty deeply woven into the certainly into Western thought, and I and I think that's unfortunate because, and that's what's interesting about what Huxley's trying to point out, right? It, it, it's it's sort of. Um, I think there's a line in the Moody Blues somewhere. It's all around us if we could but perceive, right? This idea that they shouldn't be separate, right? Yes, there's our everyday life. There's the things that we have to do. There's utility and use and practicality and purpose and pleasure and the things that we're doing here and there. But those things take on a whole nother level of reality when we when we also understand them to be part of one, part of the unity, part of eternity. And that and that's sort of what, what you know Huxley's wrestling with. It's a paradox. It's a tension. But it's a really, really important one because if we don't find it, then we get the world of Douglas Adams, right? And we get the world of sort of purposeless, I don't want to say hedonism, but I mean, if you look around our world today, you know, we, we, it's pretty materialistic. So this, this well, is, you know, it's a fascinating idea. And, you know, somewhere that, that Huxley goes with this is this idea that we're sort of, we're, symbols can't be what they stand for. The symbol can never be what it stands for. And we're sort of trapped by language. We're yeah. trapped by these constructs. And at one point he even talks about, they ask him to close his eyes, I guess, and, and not look at things, but look inside himself. And he says, what he sees is brightly colored, changing things made of plastic. And, and those, that's his, he says, my personal contribution to the universe. He's that's that's his the set of symbols by which his brain interprets what he's seeing. And and that's a that's a trap. We're trapped by those symbols and trapped by those language by language. But without the trap, without the symbols, 
we have the dis- disintegration of our understanding here. And, and that's a dangerous thing. And Alfred, I know that you would be able to and um, explain this a little better than I can do here, but, and so I'll let you do that in a second here, but Huxley, Huxley talks for a while about a friend of his who had a wife who went insane and, and, comp- mm. and, and sort of compares the, yeah. compares the experience of have of stepping outside, transcending the self with going insane. And, and, you know, there's, there's a big tradition yeah. of that too. I mean, in the Moody Blues, if you, I think the same album, maybe in search of the lost chord, that, that little scream at the end of the introduction. I mean, I think that's also a reference yeah. to what happens when you, when you transcend and when, when this, that construct disintegrates, maybe you, do you feel like you want to take that on Alfred? <laughs> well, it, uh, Huxley brings up uh, schizophrenia in, in the doors of perception, right? I mean, he, in fact, one of the, one of the areas, I mean, part of the reason all this comes up for him, right. Is there was a, and I, I don't, I, I'm not up on where the research has gone, but certainly in his time, the, you know, there was interest in psychedelic drugs as, as a treatment for things like schizophrenia. Um, and, and this, and this predates Timothy Leary. I mean, this is, this is the early 1950s when he, when he, uh, wrote this, but there was some research going on. But he certainly brings that up, you know that that those I guess who who see that there is, you know, who at the same time are seeing, you know, beyond the filter, but also seeing the filter, you know, that that can be very dangerous and difficult to reconcile. And but I, but I, I guess I would I would submit that that, and again I'm way out of my way out of my depth here, but um, that you know, that particular piece of it, the, the, the piece talking about insanity or mental illness. I mean, that's, that's about imbalance in the brain. Um, that's not the same thing as say pursuing meditation and, uh, you know, oh, no. you know some of the, the effects same. may be the same, but, but, you know, but, but it's not, the, not the same thing. So I don't, I don't want to um, cloud those two things, but. Um, no, I mean, one of, one of the points that Huxley makes is that of course, if, if you're on a mescaline trip, you get to come back. Right. I mean, and, and when you go insane and, and the, 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 right. the person that he talks about, there gets to be a point where there is no coming back. But but what what maybe touches on some things we've discussed on this podcast before, I think, is how dangerous this is. You, Alfred, spoke, I think, perhaps in the very last one, the one we, where we discussed, Arthur, you talked about fairy and the fact that it's a dangerous place. Huxley says that very thing. It's horribly dangerous, I think, is his phrase, or something very similar to that in any case. I mean, so so when we let those symbols go and when we transcend the self, we're out of safe territory? Well, okay, yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, I think the, the fairy business is, it's dangerous if we enter and we don't let go of the self. I mean, so, so, the, I mean, you know, we, I guess we eventually need to do a whole. So that's a different danger. It sounds like. Well, I, th- I think it is because, Although, well. I, now I had not seen them as so different, but, but it, okay. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm not, I'm not positive, but I mean, I think the notion of why fairy is dangerous, why it's fae. It, 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 Can you get lost there and never get back? Yes. Yes. Okay. But, but the, I think but that's the, where Huxley is too. I mean, right. if, if you can't get back, if you can't reintegrate. I don't know. Well, I, I guess I guess the what I would see as the difference is just the the, the reason the reason it's dangerous. I mean, I th- we I mean, it sounds like we need to do a whole podcast on this concept of of, of Faye, but 
Um, Our list of ideas grows. Yes. But, but I think the reason it's dangerous is this idea you're entering into the realm of eternity, but you are, you are clinging to the self. In other words, you're, you're seeking power, you're seeking advantage and woe to the person that, you know, that does that. Uh, you know, actually I, I, I play around this a little bit in, in, in my, with, in my novel actually, right. It, it's, it's, that's where evil arises. The push of the uh, pendulum, which you can read on our website, dadalia.net. Yes. Right. So I'm, so I'm not, you know, in other words, you get yourself into trouble when you enter the realm of no self and yet you are clinging to self. Um, and, and so I, I don't know if it's this, maybe the like trigger different is different. Danger. Yeah. I don't know. Cause, cause it seems like what Huxley's worried about is, is, is um, yeah. The, the, the permanent dissolution of the filter. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Not being able to come back. And I don't know why he's, why he's talking about that really exactly because part of the book where he discusses the value, potential value of psychedelic drugs. This is not so interesting from the idea, idea perspective, the idea perspective, but he, Oh, talks it weighs, it weighs, psychedelic drugs against say alcohol and talks about yes, the right, human the need to, to transcend the self. And, you know, right. if you don't give people mescaline, they're certainly going to go drink alcohol and, you know, which is better. And he gets all deep into that, which I think is a, a period question. I mean, I don't know, writing in the fifties, this is before the sixties, this is before yes. the hippies, oh, yeah. you know, but, but I guess that, that became a, you know, a major debate of, throughout culture once you hit the 60s and all that starts happening but i think well i mean this reminds me of a couple of um passages from another another author not to bring in too many connections but i'm going to do it anyway uh, terry pratchett who, who um, oh yeah unfortunately passed away fairly recently um but you know is known for his voluminous Discworld series um many 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 volumes but but there's there's a there's a couple of places where he he wrestles with these issues too and and like there's one uh the novel the hog father which one of one of the the primary characters is death uh, an anthropomorphic personification of death um and 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 there's, there's is he a there's, reaper yes yes he is. <laughs> of course he is, he is. all right yeah. but, the, but there's this f- fabulous thing he says at one point in the novel which is where he because he, he's a fan of humans he like he, he, he loves humans and so he says human beings make life so interesting do you know that in a universe so full of wonders they have managed to invent boredom <laughs> which is you know which is a, a fabulous uh line you know i mean because that's true i mean if you, you and then i think it very much relates to what we're talking about because you know huxley's kind of saying hey you know this whole universe is out there and we could perceive it all if we could get past these filters and yet we get bored you know we we, we actually get bored and anyone who um means we're living in the filter yeah i mean right we're just living in the filter and the, yeah. and the mechanisms of the filter are not keeping us entertained and you know but yet the, the, the there's wonder in a flower there's wonder in a grain of sand to you know to quote blake um but then at the same time uh you know this idea that it's impossible to also spend all of your time on the other side like you've been talking about um you know there, there's a line from the we freemen um where the, the character Tiffany is reflecting. She's had a, she's had essentially an experience of of transcendence. Um, you know. Wait, is that another of Pratchett's books? Yeah, it is. Yes. Okay. The, the We Freemen. Um, okay. And she says, "I'll never be like this again. I'll never again feel as tall as the sky and as old as the hills and as strong as the sea." You know, so there's there's that universal connection, right? I've been given something for a while, and the price of it is that I have to give it back. Um, 
And then a little later, and the reward is giving it back too. No human could live like this. You could spend a day looking at a flower to see how wonderful it is. There's Huxley. Uh, yep. and, that, and that wouldn't get the milking done. No wonder we dream our way through our lives. To be awake and see it all as it really is. No one could stand that for long. And there you get to the danger again. Right, exactly. Right. And um, if you're willing to give it back, right, you, in other words, you're willing to subsume the self, then then it, it's it, maybe it's safe. But if, if, if you're if you're clutching and grasping, you know, then then it's dangerous because it, it will annihilate you, I guess. So that's, you know, it's uh, this is all about paradox, you know, isness, suchness. Uh, is there, but we can, and we, and we, apparently we need to touch it or see it or feel it, but, but we can only handle so much. Oh, it doesn't, I mean, doesn't the, uh, the final piece that we intended to talk about, doesn't that sort of address a little bit of the fear that you may have going into this? It is not dying. I mean, yeah, right. I feel like, um, and, and here we're, we're, we're now heading to our final piece, John Lennon's Tomorrow never knows. Tomorrow never knows. Yes. Which apparently you. was a a, a a a name that Ringo Starr came up with, actually. Ringo. Um, hey, Ringo. Yes. Good for him. Yeah. Right. Um, that that the the song in the recording process was actually they were talking about the void. It was the name they were using, and then Ringo sort of came up with this phrase that they ended up using. But yeah, tomorrow never knows. It's uh, it's the last song on the album Revolver, um, and it is the first. Not, not the first song that's maybe 10, you know, th there are some hints of psychedelia, um, maybe even on Rubber Soul, but yeah, oh, I the, think al so. the album before, um, but Revolver was 1966 and it, this song would really launch the psychedelic era in terms of the 1960s, in terms of music, at least. I mean, it was a very deliberate, John Lennon uh, had been using LSD, which while not being mescaline, right, was a similar sort of uh, thing. Uh, he had read um, Timothy Leary's book that he wrote with a couple of co-authors called The Psychedelic Experience, um, which was a manual for using psychedelic drugs based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which itself is a guide to dying and being reborn, right, to reincarnation. And so, yeah, it's this, this turn off your mind, relax, float downstream. It is not dying. It is not dying is the refrain of the, of the song. So that that notion of 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 letting go and not being afraid, surrender to the void, which is that, yeah. and also don't don't be grasping, huh? Yeah, turn off all thoughts. Yeah, yeah. surrender to the void. Yeah, I mean, I, so again, I, that's to me a really fascinating question: is you know, is the choice between living a life that is just you know wallowing in the conveniences, or is it? turn off all thoughts and surrender to the void or is there is there some middle way that allows us to touch the void but yet have it inform our lives in this world i mean i think that that's really the interesting question i mean it's it's i think it's paradox but i think that's oh and the, and and you're heading stra straight back to myth aren't you <laughs> well everything is about going myth. yeah well, well actually i was thinking i was thinking of um i was thinking a little bit about martin buber Oh no, uh, um, my lord! Yes, um, uh, who who is a I guess today a pretty obscure uh, Jewish philosopher, first part of the 20th century. But he wrote a, a book that was very influential called "I and Thou." You couldn't do, um, and uh, just just one simple idea from it that I think is 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 relevant here. Um, it's just basically what he what he argues is that for most of our lives we live in in the world of what he calls it, 
right? We live in the world of use, of utility, and where, where our interactions with the world are all about meeting our own needs. And, and that, you know, everything around us is an object of use. And, and so we interact with things as, as it, I to an it. Uh, and the it does not have the um, weight, the seriousness of I, right? I'm more important because I'm using this teacup or whatever. And, and of course, the danger is that we interact with people that way, right? We, we objectify people and they become objects of use. And so he tries to argue that what we need to be doing is interacting with others as a thou, as, as a, um, it's a really, it's actually a weird translation because the German is do, which is the informal. And he uses thou, which in English is formal, but never mind. The the point is we should be interacting with others as thou as as pe- persons in themselves or, or and also with nature and, and other other things, but the point is that when he he tries to argue when that happens when you interact with another as a thou rather than as an it as something it, valuable in them in and of themselves, not as an object of use you discover what he calls the eternal thou, um, which is is the language he's using to describe. God or the divine, but to me, it connects right back to this idea of it's actually in this world, if lived in a certain way, that we find eternal meaning. Um, It's not by being gone completely from the world, and it's not by wallowing in the world. You know, it's not by the the realm of use, but it's also not by um, permanent death of the self, right? It's somehow this paradoxical union of the two. And so myth, yeah, I mean, I, you know, isn't myth where we try to articulate that we, we we all carry our myths around with us yeah the stories we tell to bring to 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 resolve that tension yeah i mean um and 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 that that idea the stories we tell to resolve that tension i think the modern world has made some major assaults on that way of yes. coping with the problem i mean i think that's one of our frustrations with modernity part of what adams is um poking fun at but also it's, it's, I guess you would argue probably a very serious problem to human happiness, well, and human welfare. Uh, yeah, I would. But I also think it's what's what Huxley is, you know, in some ways criticizing as well. I he mean, is absolutely. It's the reduction of, of our, our being to very little. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's essentially just for the sake of argument, let's say he's right. And we have this capacity to, to feel and know so much more than we do. If we, if we, if we don't do that in some way, then we're not fully what we can be. Um, um, And, and people, right. People need to, they need myths, right. We need stories that, that make sense out of the universe for us. And then ultimately when, when you say, okay, here's the story and it's making sense out of the universe for me. um, That's essentially it's encapsulating what you believe. And, you know, if a machine does your believing for you, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, it, it, then, then we're, we're not, we're not fully human. Um, Not fully human. Yeah. I mean, Pratchett has this, this wonderful description of what humans are. He says, we, you know, again, it's in the Hogfather. He says, we are the humans are the place where the falling ape, or sorry, where the where the falling angel meets the rising ape. Nice. I love that. Where the where the falling angel meets the rising ape. I mean that you know. Um, so so yes, we're we're animals like all everybody else, you know. But we we have this capacity for con- self consciousness and self awareness, um, which other some other animals have as well. And the universe is big enough. There are presumably plenty of other examples out there somewhere. But that uh, capacity for awareness is something that we either use or we don't, I guess. And, and 
Huxley's saying there's so much more and you know what are what what are, I mean yeah what are our myths um what what do our myths tell us about how we how we see the world if our myth is if our myth is of consumption then you know uh, we're not too far off from electric monks I think if we do it right as John Lennon said it is being yes it is being so I, I would imagine if somebody uh had never heard that song uh and listened to it right now which all of our listeners should go out and do of course um of course you know, immediately it, it, it would you know it'll it'll sound pretty bizarre i mean because the beatles it wasn't just the lyrics right they, they were they were very consciously trying to create in a song they were trying to trying to recreate the experience of this kind of um drug trip uh, and you know there's sitars and a syncopated beat and then they did all these tape loops and i mean it's a very bizarre recording but you know, it, I guess what, what they're trying to evoke is, is the filters coming down. Yes. Uh, yes. So pretty interesting. Worth, 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 worth listening to. So have a listen. Yeah. Have a yeah. listen. Don't forget to visit Dahlia.net where you can follow our podcast and see what's new with our many projects and look for beyond the labyrinth on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Join us next time when we'll beagle about a suite of ideas related to the universality of human experience in Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year and Herman Hesse's Narcissus and Goldman.